Hey, it's Liz Kelly. Here are a few things to check out in the Ringer universe before the end of the week. We've got an oral history on the movie Rounders 20 years later going up on Thursday. So read that and then check out the Rewatchables episode that Bill and Sean did on the movie earlier this month. And don't forget about our extensive football coverage. We have a new pod going up every day of the week on the Ringer NFL show and more football content on the Bill Simmons podcast, Dual Threat and Against All Odds. Subscribe to those and more on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Is it white boy day, guys? Must be white boy day. <laughs> it ain't white boy day, is it? <laughs> True Romance, the rewatchables coming up. <laughs> From the director of Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Hello, baby! Clarence? I'm a married man, buddy. <laughs> a con man. Ask him if you got the letter. Did you get the letter? A call girl. You cop our day? Huh? What are you doing in L.A. anyway, huh? And a suitcase full of trouble. My name is Vincent Cocotti. I work as consul for Mr. Blue Lou Boyle, the man your son stole from. Now, all that stands between them and their wildest dreams are 60 cops, 40 agents. He's a wild man, this kid Clarence. I like him. 30 mobsters. I haven't killed anybody. Since 1984. And a few thousand bullets. We're all gonna die here. These are cops! Not since Bonnie and Clyde have two people been so good at being bad. True Romance. All right, Sean Fantasy is here. Chris Ryan is here. It is the 25th anniversary this month of True Romance, a much-imitated movie that, uh, when it came out in 1993, was like an atomic bomb. It was like, what is this? It was a roller coaster ride. There were a ton of actors, many of whom I knew at the time in 1993, and some I didn't know as well, who now we know all of them. And uh, it really holds up. It's probably about 10 minutes too long. Felt a little fat in a couple parts but has some of the great scenes of the nineties and a lot of people at the top of their games, Chris Ryan. Yeah. Uh, this came out when I was, I guess I was 15 and that time period in your life between like 15, 18, 20 is like whatever the coolest thing you've seen is the coolest thing you've ever seen in your life. And that was definitely the case for this run of reservoir dogs in 92 true romance in 93. And th- and then you can even bring in a lot of other stuff. Like Wu-Tang Clan's album came out a month after this, I think, in 93. Mm-hmm. And it's it's no understatement to say that my life changed in that year. Uh, just in terms of introducing me to a whole world that I didn't know about. I think the I think Check Your Head came out then, the Beastie Boys record. Yep. Which was another big, like, there's so many references. There's this whole world of, like, movies and soundtracks and records that you don't know about. And it it was just so intoxicating, man. And I still... I think Tarantino just was like kind of a big bang for me. Like he was kind of a comet. Like, and, and I still like, I'm just so gassed on everything that he he's ever really done. But this movie for all it's, it's problems and problems in retrospect is it's still rocks. Sean. Yeah. I think Chris hit on something really smart there. Uh, what? 
<laughs> this is one of those movies that shows you about a hundred other movies. Yeah. There's so many other movie posters. There's so many movies playing in the background of movies. There's so many songs that you'd never would have heard if you hadn't seen them in these scenes. There's so many actors who you wouldn't have thought would have been right for parts like this and they find their way in. You know, Tarantino and I guess Tony Scott, the director, in the same way that like Wu-Tang and the Beastie Boys introduced you to new stuff. They like they introduced you to a million things in this movie. And yeah. some of it is like way over the line and some of it is ridiculous and purposely trying to like poke at you. But man, he just showed you so much new stuff. It was so such a sensory overload. It's such a fun movie. It's like a bit it's like a big brother movie. It's like where where like you see it and then you see uh Christian Slater and Saul Rubinek talking about fear and desire, and somebody leans over and is like, you know, that's Stanley Kubrick movie. And you're like, I didn't know that. I never. I don't think I'd ever seen Walkin' and Hopper really in movies before when I was this young. I mean, I think maybe, but like never like this. Yeah, you I know? mean, maybe Hoosiers probably yeah. before before this. I'm trying to think of what are the big movies that those guys were in that you would have seen when you were 12 or 13. I think it's hard to overstate the Tarantino dialogue and how unique it was at the time because it's been so ripped off ever since. You know, Reservoir Dogs was the first one, but even like in this movie when um. The first time we meet Gary Oldman and he's with Sam Jackson, they're doing a drug deal and they're talking about eating pussy and that stuff just wasn't in movies. Yeah. And characters who were, you know, is basically good guys, bad guys, cops, drug dealers. And those people didn't have conversations like that. Yeah. And he was able to make all of these people likable that were actually bad people. And I don't remember, I guess the Godfather did it to some degree that, you know, that was like a family mafia movie, but the, the way he just entered this world in the dialogue, you always knew it was a Tarantino movie. Oh, yeah. And you could read. I remember getting all the books. I would go to like uh, Walden Books or Brentano's or whatever the bookstore was, and I would buy the scripts, and I would read them. Like, Me too. They're actual books. The script's like, incredible. really fun to read. The script is really, really fun to read. You know, and he's obviously drawing a lot from like Elmore Leonard and stuff. That's the, the Detroit setting. Uh, a lot of crime movies from the 70s. But the thing that was also happening was within the world of these movies, within the the, the scripts and within the actual cinematic universe, he was building a cinematic universe at that time. Characters, were there, there would be lines like, did I Joe to a damned if I know? Or there'd be themes that kept coming up, like cops being like, you have to act, talking about acting, you know, like the Tim Roth monologue in Reservoir Dogs. And then that kind of comes up again with Tom Sizemore being like, act, motherfucker, you're an actor, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, these ideas started popping up and then with Pulp Fiction and later on, you start to find out that there are actually these connective characters that are happening in here. But even so, in True Romance, like they mentioned like Lance runs the comic book store in Detroit. Lance winds up, I don't think it's the same person, but it, that's the name of Eric Stoltz's character in Pulp Fiction. Like there's just like this feeling like you're being led into this whole other world of, of, of references, jokes and sayings, and also characters that may share the, the same world. It feels like all the characters from those three movies could have intersected in a different movie. Well, Alabama like Mr. comes Wade up in Reservoir Dogs, Dogs, right? She's mentioned in, in the movie before this yeah. as a partner that Mr. White used to work with yeah. um, when they were Robin Banks together, which is Harvey Keitel's character. Uh, yeah, it, it's weird. It's one of those things where Tarantino, if you had met him, I think in real life, you would have thought like, this guy is the classic archetype of the obnoxious video store clerk, record store clerk, you know, in this movie, the the comic book store salesperson who is just knows more than you, is kind of obnoxious, has a ton of information. But to get to the information, you're like, oh, man, I got to talk to this guy. But yeah. in movie form, him doing his vision of the world was so bracing and so effective and so fun. And this movie is like, it's 
one part autobiography, one part fantasy, you know, one part aspiration of what he wanted to be. There's something so funny to watch somebody try to put themselves on screen in that way and and also like make themselves Christian Slater, which is not who Quentin Tarantino is. Yeah, and I think yeah. they struggled with that part, the casting part of it. I There was one thing when I was researching it, there was like a 500-page screenplay that was basically three different movies. Yeah, it was the where open Alabama ends yeah. up going on the road with Mr. White from Reservoir Dogs. It's Natural and that Born Killers, natural right? Born yeah. Killers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, his, his story is worth noting at this point because I feel like this is right. He sells... He sells this and he sells Reservoir Dogs. He keeps Reservoir Dogs to direct for himself and sells this. Tony Scott wanted to direct both of these movies. And well, he was paid 50K for True Romance. Yeah. Used that money to fund Reservoir Dogs. Right. And then and, gave Tony Scott the choice. Right. And then the thing that's really interesting is that obviously he's this outsider. He's working at a video store in Manhattan Beach. He's friends with Roger Avery. They're kind of like, he's been trying to get get work but yeah. once it happens for him, it goes zero to 60. He's immediately uh, considered an auteur. The one thing I wanted to ask you, because you were probably- I was right out of college. Older, like, did you, when was the first time you heard about him? And did you hear about Reservoir Dogs before it hit theaters? Like, or, because there was a lot of talk about Tarantino. It was like, all those actors who were in this movie were like, I have to be in this. Yeah, and, and Reservoir Dogs played Sundance and was like a major thing when it played Sundance. But did, did you... Cause I, I saw True Romance like, first and then circle back and saw Reservoir Dogs. Okay. I never yeah. saw Reservoir Dogs in the theater. I think it came out... I think I was in college and I just missed it. Mm-hmm. I think it was like one of those things that didn't even. It's not really like it was a happening. huge hit, you know. It's it not wasn't. like it was a box office. Yeah, success. and it wasn't in uh, you know five thousand theaters. Right. It wasn't those things. I saw True Romance in the theater, and there just wasn't movies like that. I think now people have tried to imitate those type of movies so many times, where this exhilarating ride with characters and actors that are really going for it, um, and a couple twists and turns and some big ass scenes and. But in 93, that wasn't happening. And it was also a pretty weird time for movies, not necessarily a good time. You know, it was like very generic kind of. Yeah, it's right at that tipping point from going from like Driving Miss Daisy into that like the, the Sundance Bratz like moment where yeah. Robert Rodriguez this and is Kevin when Smith take and Tarantino, Soderbergh, yeah. all these guys come along and then Fincher, Paul Thomas Anderson. And then movies change. Like movies in the 90s change a lot. This is kind of, you're right. This is like a crux point. We're setting up 96 to 2000, which is one of the best five-year movie runs ever. But this, and 94 is one of the best mainstream movie years ever. But that 90, 91, 92, it just wasn't that good. It was a lot of sequels. It was a lot of people being disappointed. That's when William Goldman was writing a lot for uh, New York Magazine. Just constantly like, what the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. How, is, how is everybody missing on this stuff? Where are movies going? And then Reed this William movie Goldman's happened. The Big Picture. That's all of his essays collected. That's which is yeah. the name of my it's podcast. It's basically like, 88 to 93. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it's like, yeah, Pretty Woman. How did this happen? Richard Garrett made 10 straight terrible movies. And then all of a sudden he's in the biggest. But there was really no rhyme or reason what was going on. But what was really not going on was a lot of creativity. Yeah. And then Tarantino came in. I was like, oh, movies. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he obviously stimulates something in the people who are working with him. But most of all, what was interesting was that after Dogs came out and he obviously set himself up as this auteur who's going to direct his own work. But then you have Tony Scott's reading of his work, like Tony Scott's rendition of his script. And it looks like Beverly Hills Cop. It looks like Top Gun. You know, it's got Jeffrey Kimball shooting it. It's got Hans Zimmer music. It. It's really, really interesting. And this is sort of right where I think there starts to be a critical 
recognition of what Tony Scott brought to movies and what he did specifically. He's become kind of a hip hip director and uh, posthumously. But back then, people kind of looked at Tony Scott as the guy who made like Jerry Bruckheimer movies, right? Yeah. Well, he, he did the Hunger in the in the late seventies, early eighties, and people were like this guy's a great artist. And then he does Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop two, and it's just like, oh, he's a Hollywood guy. Yeah. He's a slick Hollywood guy. <laughs> I, but did everyone feel that way? Because I love Tony critics Scott. Critics did. Critics did. Yeah. Critics yeah but did. I didn't care what like Peter Travers thought. Yeah, but, like, but at that I time. Loved it. So he he rips off, Tony Scott rips off Top Gun. Uh-huh. Beverly Hills Cop 2, which is a great movie, movie and was super satisfying and made a lot of money. And everybody came out of the theater and was like, that was awesome. I loved it. Uh, Days of Thunder. Mm-hmm. Cruise did mm-hmm. a lot. The racing car movie. Revenge was his only miss. The Kevin Costner movie, which- didn't work and probably should have. I don't really know what happened. But it's sort of lived lived on as like a, a film tumbler. Like, look at this still from Revenge. It's yeah. so awesome. Yeah. yeah. But then Last Boy Scout was when there was backlash, and I remember being disappointed with Last Boy Scout because it was like Bruce Willis at the height of his powers, Damon Wayans. Like everybody's just so ready for another Eddie Murphy. It's like, hey, a funny black guy and action movie and their sports and people just wanted that to be awesome. It's actually kind of better than Shane Black script, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's better than people remember, but at the time was just considered kind of, it didn't totally work. Famously horrible production. Like those, everybody on the movie hated each other. Yeah. Everybody hated Bruce Willis, Joel Silver and Tony Scott didn't get along. This then influences true romance quite a yes. bit, which we'll yeah, talk we'll about. Hit that. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny. Tony Scott though, at the time, I think everybody was like, he's all sizzle, no steak. Like he doesn't yes. really have anything to say. Yeah. He's just got amazing style. And you know, there's a case for that, but him with a good writer and a good movie star is awesome. Yeah. Um, and then he does true romance and Crimson Tide here. Which Tarantino did a little bit of uh dialogue polish on on Crimson Tide. There's a Christian Slater moment that has to be mentioned. Yeah. Um he does Heathers, which was a really important indie movie and really creative and a thing. It was him and Winona. Um, it's hard to believe that movie got made now. It's basically like a, a school massacre. It's really dark. Know, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Uh, it was dark 30 years ago and now it'd be even uh, darker. But one of my favorite movies of that year, I even remember where I saw it. I just fucking loved it. And then he does Pump Up the Volume, mm-hmm. which is this iconic 90s indie great soundtrack. Christian and- Slater invented podcasting. <laughs> Christian Slater. <laughs> volume invented podcasting. So we've he talked about that. Alex Where Jones. did we first talk about that? I don't remember. We've talked about it before. Christian Slater 100% invented podcasting. And <laughs> He's the, the original Joe Rogan. He's and just like, I'm be, out of here, man. Talking. We actually should do like a rewatchables or a second watch or something of that movie because I think people would be stunned that it really did invent podcasting. Then he does Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Then he does Untamed Heart. Yeah. And it's kind of falling apart a tiny pit for him because there's this moment where it was like, that's the next Jack Nicholson. Sounds like he had somewhat of a Rocky off screen life. Yeah, I think at that he had time. some substance stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he, right, had, I think he was arrested. He was arrested multiple times. Yeah. yeah. He also was a child actor because he was in uh, a couple of things when he was like 15, 16. He was a legend of Billy Jean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was Gleaming um, the Cube. He'd done a bunch of stuff. But we had, I had a lot of personal equity in Christian Slater. <laughs> I think a lot of people did. It was like, that's Art Nicholson. That's going to be yeah. our guy. And it didn't happen. And then he's thrown into romance. They dye his hair. And it was kind of like make or break for him. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up being really good in it. But he, and was, it actually he was the sell of the movie. Though. Winds up having like a pretty much a lost decade after that. What's interesting is Brad Pitt's in this movie right after Thumb and Louise. So he had some smoke and cachet. It's kind of surprising they just didn't have Brad Pitt as the lead of this movie, or at least push for it. It doesn't seem like that even ever occurred to anybody. It was always Slater. One of the things that's really interesting when you go back and read about all the movies of this era is how many 
different people were going for these parts. So, and also just in terms of like the production schedules, I'm not, I can't remember what Brad Pitt did right after Thelma and Louise. Was that seven? It's right. A California, maybe no seven was like 94, 95. He did the Thelma and Louise, which I'm going to say was 90 or 91. Cause I was in college and then did made a couple of weird movies. He made like California. He got California Legends of the Fall. Right. There's a handful of movies in that. But he's like, I'll just do like three days he's on this, whatever I can it. be. I just want to be yeah. in There's it. a yeah. couple of people like him, Val Kilmer, who was just like, I just, can I just have a part? Val I'll Kilmer was Slater's part. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do anything. Val Kilmer, I think would have been too old. Yeah. He would have been. It would have been. But weird. he had worked with Scott in yeah. Top Gun. So 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, Sean. Don't care. Robert Ebert. Really yeah. like this movie. Roger Ebert, the great Roger no, Ebert. No, he's talking about Robert Ebert. Roger, uh, you know Roger Ebert and Robert Ebert. Roger Ebert. Ebert. Yeah. Come back on the rewatchables. The last three that he we've done, it. he's really liked. Hard to believe the most famous and I good film critic him. of all time. I was worried about his taste. A box office failure. It bombed it. Yeah. It, it, Spent 12 and a half million, made 12.3. It's a tough sell. It's funny to read the stories about them trying to do the test screenings and the marketing of this movie. They didn't really know how to sell it to the audience. And also, like you said, I think it's a great point. People didn't really know how to deal with a movie like this. The reviews, we live in a culture now where everybody's like, oh my God, this is so offensive about everything. But the reviews of this movie, people are like, this movie's way over the line. When people were reading yeah. the script, I think Patricia Arquette was like, uh, this movie's like real racist. Yeah. You know, and like, and th- they had to like work through it. And totally, I mean, that was... That's a whole other thing where it's like, this isn't like going back and being like, oh yeah, man, everybody was like, all movies were like this. No movie was like this. No movie was like Reservoir Dogs. No mainstream movie made by a guy like this. Yeah, you know? yeah. That was, th- those, <clears throat> the dialogue in these movies is still pretty scandalous. Oh, yeah. Dogs had, uh, the ear cutting scene was the big one from that that became a whole story. Whether yeah. that went too far, should that have been in the movie? Sure. Should this be rated X? But I even the Madonna conversation in the beginning, you're kind of like, is this really happening in a movie? Yeah. Like, I can't believe this. Yeah. I was trying to think what the legacy of this movie was before we get to the categories. I would say it's peak Tony Scott. It's really Tony Scott throwing all his pitches. It's a complete game, 15 strikeouts, seven walks, three hits, kind of Tony Scott movie. If you're going to say, I'm trying to explain to somebody what Tony Scott is, I have to show them a Tony Scott movie. It would mm-hmm. probably be this movie. It's got incredible scenes with cars. It's got an incredible shootout and it's got and men and women looking beautiful and humor and dialogue clicking. Also, yeah. it's he's the master of like, you know what this this shot needs? Steam coming out of a grate. You mm-hmm. know what this shot needs? All the streets have to be wet. Everything should be neon. Everything should be like blue light hitting her face in this. It's a painterly movie. It's, you know what it, else it has too that is a Tony Scott thing? It has a train. Yeah. You know, Dennis Hopper. Oh, there's so many trains in, in Tony Scott movies. He loves the things that are moving all the time. I'll say this. When I was a kid, you know, because like obviously like when you're a teenager, you basically have your hometown and maybe like the one or two or three places your parents have ever taken you in your life. This movie made LA look like another planet, yeah. man. And yeah. I think it was yeah. interesting to listen to the cast members talk about they were all obviously young had some money probably were partying a lot and they're like it kind of captured this moment in los angeles of like shady producers everybody going out for auditions everybody trying to get movies and there's a couple all of these movies people like this. around that and and all, all these people are in this movie at the time and that the film that they're in kind of reflects their life and it sounds like it was a very uh fun loving set in terms of how much they partied and stuff like that and especially given like what happened to a bunch of the people in this movie i mean yeah it's the player it's a, was like that too swimming yeah. with sharks there's like four or five movies from this era that was kind of like Hollywood looking at itself. Mm-hmm. 
Um, which was great because we didn't have the internet back then. I didn't know anything about Hollywood. Yeah. I just had a couple books that I read and that was it. I love watching these movies now too, having lived in LA for a while, like when Floyd gets confronted by the gangsters and he's giving them directions about how to get to the Beverly Ambassador. And he's like, <laughs> just go down Beachwood <laughs> for a while, make a right and keep yeah. going. And it's like, I know what that means now. Like yeah. he was actually trying to give them directions to Sunset Boulevard. And you know, like I, when I was 13, I didn't know what that was. It is slightly more fun to watch this movie. When you're in LA, this is one of the craziest casts we've ever had. Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, Rappaport, Bronson Pinchot, Saul Rubidek, Dennis Hopper, James Gandolfini, Gary Oldman, Christopher Walken, Chris Penn, Tom Sizemore, Brad Pitt, Val Kilmer, Sam Jackson. I think this was the first movie that was like, fucking, we're going for it. We're just, here's the all-star team. I, I think it has the most five minutes or less great performances of maybe any movie ever. Yeah. Where people have such limited screen time, but they're awesome when they're on screen. I mean, like Sam Jackson, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, and Saul Rubinek. It's the best Pinchot, Deanne Waiters Pinchot, award. Pinchot, like, yeah. It's the best yes. Deanne Waiters award we've had in oh, all the you, times we we've would been have to, We have to expand the field. I thought yeah. Heat was like number one for Deanne Waiters, but I think this, this is But better. this is actually almost self-aware. It's it's yeah. self-aware of Dion before Dion was Dion. It's like they know that they're only going to do six pages of, of script and they're going to light them all on fire. Craig, uh, Craig, the producer who's doing the pod today, who hadn't seen it before, he was like, man, all these actors are really going for it. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of like I'm getting in the game. I'm jacking up shots. Well, because you're talking about that time period in movies, and then Tarantino comes along, and if you're an actor, you must be like, it's like going from playing plotting half court basketball to Doug Moe offense. You know, right. it's like all of a sudden you're just you're throwing uh, going up and down the court as fast as you can, and it's probably really thrilling. Yeah, I mean, White Men Can't Jump was another example. It's like, a good one. Man, this is really original dialogue. Uh-huh. I'm not, I'm not used to this, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it was a lot of like in the line of fire with Clint Eastwood, John Malkovich type of movies, Yeah, like movies you could tell from the poster what it was and where it, it was going. In some cases, it's guys trying to recreate how they talk to their friends. And in some cases, it's guys taking like detective novels and Kung Fu movies and stuff that they liked and like just turning them to the left a little bit. Um, but his, you know, the Tarantino voice has been written about over and over and over again. It's like, it's. It's one in a billion. It's one in 10 billion. Like just somebody like that yeah, comes it's also, along. It's also ultimately someone who doesn't play by a lot of dramatic rules because what he's basically saying is like all the voices are the voices in my head. Yeah. And everybody is going to sound in a certain way. It's not like those characters. It's not like the the voice deviates when it's someone who's maybe not as well read or hasn't seen these movies or is it. I mean, everybody here has an anecdote. Everybody here has this performative monologue and everybody here has these little like, ability to do this patter that is just all in one dude's brain. Yeah. I'm probably under overrated or underrating uh 9293 because there were good movies. Okay. I, I guess there were just not movies like this. Let's hear it. I was looking at like the domestic grosses. So you had Jurassic Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Fugitive, The Firm, Sleepless in Seattle, Indecent Proposal, In the Line of Fire, Pelican Brief, Schindler's List, Cliffhanger, Free Willy, Philadelphia, Groundhog Day, Grumpy Old Men. Cool Runnings, Dave, Rising Sun, Demolition Man. I keep going, but there wasn't a movie like this, but there were like very smart, yeah, popular- Yeah, a lot of late Castle Rock, some Grisham, you know, movies like- Yeah, the, of those movies you named, I feel like Dave is one of the only ones that has like a distinct voice point of view. Like, you know, Jurassic Park is a perfect movie, 
but it's a big blockbuster. Yeah. You know, it's Steven Spielberg yeah. doing when his thing. Get, when it gets a little further down the list, it gets a little more interesting, like Alive. Sure, that's okay. Um, the Piano, Falling Down. Menace to Society, Poetic Justice. Those movies have a voice and point of view. The Crying Game. Um, those there are, are some a lot like, of those are LA movies too. Yeah. Falling Down, Poetic Justice. This one was one of a kind, but they, they but the worst part of this whole Tarantino era was all the terrible movies they spawned later. It was really the, that was the tax. You know, I like a lot of those movies. This is a funny thing. Are we going to have about. the Amongst Friends Just conversation you, now? I don't love Amongst Friends. Amongst Friends is really interesting. That's like a Long Island movie. Two Days in the Valley. Well, Two Days in the Valley and Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead were the two movies that really got killed for this. Yeah. People were like, these two movies are ripping off Tarantino so hard. But B minus Tarantino is still better than C minus still, anything coming out. Very in bad things. I still ride for Things to Do in Denver. Things to Do in Denver is a cool movie. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a break. We'll do the categories. Let's talk about DC. Do you like DC? Do you love DC? Are you what some people might call obsessed with DC? What's DC? I'll tell you. You need to get to DC Universe. It's the only place where you can watch the all-new live-action Titans, which premieres this fall, not to mention Young Justice Outsiders, Doom Patrol, Swamp Thing, Stargirl, Harley Quinn, all coming your way in 2018. New episodes come out every week. DC Universe has features that you have to see for yourself, like a world-class comic reader that even works on your big screen TV, thoughtfully curated, regularly refreshed library of 2,500 modern and classic titles, members-only store full of exclusive merchandise discussion forums. Look, it's not another streaming service. Nobody needs that. It's what you might call the ultimate DC membership available on your iOS, Android devices, as well as Roku, Apple TV, Google Chromecast. Join now. Just $7.99 a month, or better yet, grab an annual membership for $74.99, save 20%. Join today at dcuniverse.com. And since we're here, do you find yourself distracted, forgetting things, making mistakes at work? Quality night's sleep makes all the difference. The right mattress is the difference between resting and just laying down. The Lisa mattress is the product of more than 30 years of experience in mattress engineering and hundreds of hours of testing comprised of three foam layers that provide cooling pressure relief, body contouring, and support over 300,000 happy Lisa sleepers. Agree that the Lisa mattress gives them the rest they need. Order your Lisa mattress online at leesa.com slash rewatchables with promo code rewatchables or try it and try it risk-free for 100 nights. The Lisa mattress ships direct to your door. Convenient box, free shipping, free returns. Get up to $160 off Lisa mattress or $235 off the luxury Sapira mattress. Free shipping as well on the Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash rewatchables. Enter promo code rewatchables at checkout. We saved some meat for the categories because there's so much going on in this movie. Most rewatchable scene though. I really only think there's five. Okay. I think there has to be five choices. Clarence versus Drexel. Clarence goes back to get the money from Drexel. So if you haven't seen this movie in a while, Clarence falls in love with this hooker that uh, his boss hires him and they just, they get married and he decides- She's a call girl, Bill. She's a call girl. There's a, there's a difference, she says. He decides he has to emancipate her from the pimp. He just, he can't handle it. He's got to go like get his stuff and make it clear to the pimp she's with him now. Drexel Spivey, played by Gary Oldman. Yes. That leads to 
a shootout. He takes the wrong suitcase and they end up going on the run. Suitcase full of cocaine. Yeah. First rewatchable scene, Clarence goes to confront Drexel. (laughs) (laughs) Second one, Hopper versus Walken, I think, which might be the most famous scene of both of their careers. It's possible. Wow. Gandolfini versus Alabama, a complicated scene. I love how all these are versus. The Coke sale at the Beverly uh, Ambassador. Not when it go when it all goes bad, but when Slater shows up and he's talking about uh, <laughs> he's talking about his movies, that whole thing. The Vietnam just, movies. In there, he's being wired. Bronson it, Pinto's it, home wired. in a body bag. What's it called? Yeah. Coming home in a body Coming bag. Coming home in a body, in a body, body bag. bags. We're calling it body bags too. Got more taste, <laughs> taste in my, my penis. penis. <laughs> and then uh, finally, the the big shootout, the big three way. Mm-hmm. Tarantino's second three way shootout in yep. two movies. Yep. What is the most rewatchable scene? My, I personally think it's. Clarence versus Drexel is one of the great five minutes of the 90s. I just can't get enough of it. I think it's the Sicilian story. It has to be. How can it not be? It's Tarantino's favorite scene he's ever written, or at least it was whenever this last time I read about it. And it's it's like three-dimensional chess. I can't believe how good that scene is. Come again? (laughs) (laughs) It's a fact. Yeah. You see... uh, Sicilians have uh, black blood pumping through their hearts. And, and no, if you, if, you, if you don't believe me, uh, you can look it up. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, you see, um, the Moors conquered Sicily. Yeah, you go with that too? 100%. I think, one, you got Christopher Walken playing a Sicilian, which is a <laughs> ludicrous choice. He's the least Italian person I've ever seen in my life, and he pulls it off. Yeah. You've got Hopper, who's at this fascinating moment in his career. When he has like survived the nine stages of fame, he's done horrible things in his life. He's been like an amazing trailblazer filmmaker. He's been a celebrated actor, Academy Award nominated. He's been he like, villains. Shooter. He's been heroes. He was shooter. He was uh, Frank in Blue Velvet. He was all these great characters. And he actually, Chris texted me this last night. He's like so warm and like powerful in this movie. His performance, his relationship to Clarence, the way that they talk to each other. The way that they set up that relationship in like three minutes. Yeah. And then you get to this moment in that scene. He's so incredibly good. And just the dialogue's amazing. The way that all the characters, the sort of gangsters surround them in this circle. The way that it's shot. It happens in like the middle of the day, but it looks like it's three o'clock in the morning. It's so darkly lit and there's like a spotlight on them. And then the dialogue is, is crazy. It's yeah. two guys telling crazy Tarantino Who are stories. You? I'm the Antichrist and you got me in a vendetta type of mood. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> It's great stuff. All right, you talked me into it. Wait, you, you I just I love Drexel. I, Drexel is one of my favorite characters. Gary Oldman was pretty famous at that point. Like yeah. he'd been in Dracula. He was a guy that everybody talked about as like this is going to be one of the next great actors. And that out of all the people in this movie seeing it 25 years ago, that was like is that Gary Oldman? Like yeah. he, you yeah. didn't even know what was going on. Why What's wrong with his why why does he have a hat on? Why is he talking like a like a black guy, what, what's what's happening right now? Let's see. We're sitting down here, ready to negotiate. <laughs> You've already given up your shit. I'm still a mystery to you. But I know exactly where your white ass is coming from. See, if I ask if you want some dinner, and you grab the egg roll and start to try down, I say to myself, this motherfucker, he's carrying on like he ain't got a care in the world, and who knows? Maybe he don't. Maybe this fool's... Such a bad motherfucker. He don't got to worry about nothing. He just sit down, watch my motherfucking TV. 
It was such a strange, I don't even know what the 2018 version of casting would be, him in that role. There's some disagreement necessarily about like where the inspirations for the character come from. Yeah, Tony Scott and Gary Oldman had disagreed about that, right? Yeah, Tony Scott says uh, that Gary Oldman called him in the middle of the night and was like, I got it. I figured out who Drexel is. He's my drug dealer. And then when Gary Oldman was asked about it, Gary Oldman was like, fucking Tony Scott's trying to get me arrested. I don't have (laughs) a drug dealer. And then his version was he just heard a bunch of black kids outside his trailer and was emulating them. Tony Scott had a really big heat check way after this movie where he gave crazy interviews and clearly didn't like Christian Slater and took credit for a lot of stuff. Yes. uh, I don't know. (laughs) Gary Oldman could not have been happy about that stuff. No, Drexel, he's a complete Tarantino original character, though. Yeah. He's fascinating. Every single word he says is entertaining. I just think it's it's just so rare in movies to come across a the Sicilian scene. It's also like just that. like this is another example of I I don't know if they do Drexel and they shoot it basically the way that Reservoir Dogs is shot, just pretty flat. The lighting is pretty, you know, I mean obviously because of the uh because of the budget it was, they shot Reservoir Dogs for the most part in a in a warehouse, you know. And if you shoot Drexel pretty straight up and you don't have the music and the lights and he's throwing Chinese food or he's like having egg roll, all that stuff, this may just not work at all. Like that's where Tony Scott kind of makes this movie something completely different in Tarantino canon. That's why I think that's the best Tony Scott scene. Because mm-hmm. the music's perfect, that weird, crazy techno music. and Nymphomaniac the is the name push- of the artist on that song. <laughs> He's pushing the light, the yeah. light swinging back and forth. And and the whole dialogue where he's just like, see, if you had said this, then I might have been like, this is a crazy motherfucker. But like, instead you gave up everything and I gave up nothing. And he's like putting the light back and forth. I mean, it's just. And then it seems like Slater's super intimidated and he's just kind of listening. And then he's like, well, first of all, and then he has an answer that. for the yeah. seven questions. Yeah. I don't know. I just love that. I'm scene. not watching the TV because I've seen the movie already. It's the Mac from 1972. <laughs> love that. And I'm not hungry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's age the best? Feel free to throw in your own uh, additional ones here. Gandolfini, young Gandolfini. Now, as this is age, you have this whole Tony Soprano experience with him. And um, he's basically auditioning to be Tony Soprano in this movie. I mean, so many of the things that he does are in Tony Soprano. I love this movie. And it was one of the first DVDs I bought. And I watched it a lot of times in the 90s before Tony Soprano happened. He was always the guy from this movie to me. Mm-hmm. It was always like, wow, that guy was amazing. I don't know yeah. who that guy is. Where's he from? Um, this and he's bare and it. get shorty. And I always thought that those were like the two poles of Tony Soprano. Tony Soprano was like so sweet and so charming and so evil and so menacing and so violent. And like, that's that's him. It's doing the audition. Next one, age the best. Floyd. As the Beverly ambassador. Where's that? Well, you go... No. Yeah, go down. Go down beach. You guys want to smoke a bowl or... Oh. Go down Beachwood and drive a while. And then you're going to turn right, okay? And then you go and you keep driving and you keep driving. Floyd was... Did some cleaning products. <laughs> Floyd was... Uh, an A plus plus in the nineties, and especially in the <laughs> in the DVD era, and especially if you were getting baked at two in the morning, like I may have done a few times in the nineties. And Floyd was kind of our spirit animal, and it was interesting. I don't want to step on the internet research, but I didn't even know this till I did it. That 
Judd Apatow, the whole idea of Pineapple Express came from they love Floyd. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. were like, what would have happened if Floyd chased the Italians? <laughs> the perfect that's how thing they came about, up with Pineapple Express. The perfect thing about Floyd, too, is it's not like in Tropic Thunder when Tom Cruise is doing a cameo and he's just like, I'm going to work it so hard and make like, I'm he's almost trying to go viral in that movie. Yes. Yeah. It's like Brad Pitt is actually just like, I'm just going to lie on this fucking couch, man. And I'm going to like say a couple of improv lines. It's the only improv dialogue aside from. Uh, Dennis Hopper saying you're an eggplant and yeah. Christopher Walken saying you're a cantaloupe. All the Floyd stuff is largely improvised by Pitt. He's just like so perfectly woven into the fabric of the movie. He's not trying to do anything else, but the three times you see him, you're like, I can't believe I got so lucky as to see this, this freaking performance. The thing about it is though, he's the most important character in the yeah. movie. Because he's the person who gets them all together for the shootout at the end of yeah. the movie. I mean, he really is the turning point. Yeah. And the whole, don't condescend me, man. I'll fucking kill you. Like, <laughs> yeah. that part, which is my favorite line in the movie. Uh, don't condescend me is a good one. <laughs> so good. I'm gonna, I, have, I need to start saying that to you more often. <laughs> <laughs> don't condescend me, fantasy. I'm fucking kill you. Uh, you. You could kill me. I will say with the with the Brad Pitt thing, and I can't remember if we've talked about this in the rewatchables before. He has this alternate path where he's one of the great character actors of all time. Oh, yeah. Where he's created like these 15 non-essential but super memorable, fun. He just could have done that, but he it was almost like he was so handsome. He had to be a leading man. Yep. Yeah. I mean, like he still does that up through, I mean, like burn after reading where he's just like, I'm going to play this like waste of space, but it's just going to be, it's, it's actually probably what he was born to do and what he would probably prefer to do. But he's yeah. unfortunately the most famous person in the world. Seven. He's not Brad Pitt. He's, mm-hmm. it's like, there's some character he put thought in that I can't even really describe. But that I think is and a time period plays. where he's, coming to material that's not written necessarily for him. Whereas I think everything after that has started to be created for him in some way or shape or form. It, yeah, that's a good way to put it. It also sets up this relationship with Tarantino now. He makes Inglorious Bastards like yeah. 15 years later. And now that Tarantino's next movie is starring Brad Pitt once upon a time in Hollywood yeah. next year. So that's another age the best. Dennis Hopper is uh, Slater's dad. We talked about, but there's something so fucking likable about Dennis Hopper, especially as he got older. Like you, you're really attached to Shooter. You're really attached to the guy in this movie. Even like the villain in Speed, it was hard to root against him. I didn't really want to accept evil Dennis Hopper. I just liked him. Also, it's actually like a crucial scene, the Clarence Clifford scene, because we always talk about the dialogue or like the the, the these two lovers on the run as as this plot point, but that's really economical film writing to communicate a lot about who Clarence was. Yeah. And it's like, he's like, you're just like your mother. You know, I haven't seen you in three years. Hopper's obviously supposed to be a recovering alcoholic because he doesn't drink beer, but he can, you know, he's like, what's the strongest thing you've got? He's got, I got a seven up in there. You learn so much about Clarence and why he might be the kind of guy who's going to throw it all away just for this one chance. And that's actually brilliant writing. That's that thing that gets underrated about Tarantino because we're also dazzled by the structural stuff and the dialogue but almost because tony scott told this movie much more straightforwardly we get to see some of the bare bones stuff that tarantino does that's so good that scene is funny too because it has two lines from two classic movies that tarantino just lifts and puts into the movie you're just like your mother is something that hopper says in rumblefish yeah and that's the reason he gave him that line and uh the beer line that clarence is like beer's all i ever eat is uh from the last picture show and oh, those wow. are just like little, there's little tiny things like that throughout this movie that Tarantino lifts 
yeah. and puts in. And when I first heard it, I was like, what a cool line of dialogue. Beer's all I ever eat. And then 10 years later, you see Last Picture Show and you're like, oh, shit. He did that. <laughs> you know, he dropped this little Easter egg in this movie. Yeah. It was pre-internet and movie quotes and pulling stuff from the past and stuff was just a little more important. Now it's having kind of a renaissance because the Twitter gifts now when people have reactions yeah. to stuff on Twitter, they'll just grab moments from movies. But that was kind of yeah. like, people actually talked like that in the 90s. That's why when I when I started writing my column, I would throw that shit in the thing because that's how me and my friends, we just did movie lines all the time. Yep. Like that oh, was yeah. one of the ways we connected. Another one, what's age the best? This one's for you, Chris Ryan. <laughs> Sizemore and Penn together. Yeah. Just like the cop show we never got that I would have loved. Them on Fox, like like this 12-episode Fox cop show that got canceled. But they tried we, to make a couple seen cop shows with Tom Sizemore. He wasn't quite able to. It, uh, it had to be the two of them. There's something about the two of them together. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine a more- uh, Drug-addled set than yeah. Chris, Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn? I think, I think so. I mean- we saw, Sean and I saw a live read of uh, the script a couple years ago at the Ace really? Hotel that Reitman put Incredible together. Incredible cast of people reading that. People and was it a Reitman thing? It wasn't a Reitman thing. It was different. It wasn't? It was at yeah. the Ace Hotel, yeah. So they had Chris, Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette do Alabama and Clarence, but wow. uh, the cops were the Duplass brothers. Mm. And it was like, actually, I was like, oh, I would love to see a Duplass brothers, like straight up cop movie of them playing these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Sizemore and Penn are incredible in this. They're incredible. I misspoke. It was it was a, a Reitman thing. This was the lineup of people that did it. It was J.K. Simmons reading the part of Clarence's estranged father. Nice. Ke- Kevin Pollack doing Walkin. John Favreau did Gandolfini. Mark and J. Duplass as the trigger happy cops. Keegan Michael Key and Paul Shear were Drexel and Elliot Blitzer. Wow. May Whitman was a, a number of characters, I guess. And Jason Siegel was Floyd. Jesus. Yeah. Another what's age the best. Coming home in a body bag is just fucking funny. <laughs> and really right funny. on the heels of I just think the 40 entire, Vietnam movies. The entire uh, Saul Rubinek as Lee Him Donowitz watching. as Joel Silver <laughs> and Bronson Pinchot what as Was his, he watching the screeners or the dailies? He was watching, he was watching just the helicopters. <laughs> and he was, and so the whole like Joel Silver, Lee Donowitz thing, and then Bronson Pinchot being his assistant, the blonde uh, security. Boris. Yeah, Boris. He's like, I forgot to tell you something, Lee. I hate cops. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Dick Ritchie constantly trying to be like, does he know I'm an actor? Does yeah. he know I'm an actor? <laughs> I love Lee Donowitz so much. One of my favorite movie characters of all time. Yeah. Elliot, save how much it, does save this it cost for, me? <laughs> save it for Dion Waiters because okay. it's a fascinating Dion Waiters argument. The last one stage the best for me is the Hans Zimmer score. Yeah, so it's really, really distinct. I like it. It makes me happy, and I think it gives the movie a little bit of uh, levity. Here's that a it le- needs. here's movie nerdery for you. So that score is based on a composition from the 1500s by a German uh, composer, I think named Karl Orff. Yeah, and then that score is picked up and integrated into Badlands, the Terrence Malick movie from the 70s. And then Hans Zimmer essentially redoes it for this score. And, and it's an homage to Badlands. True hmm. Romance starts with Patricia Arquette's voiceover, which very much mimics state, Sissy SpaceX voiceover in Badlands. Badlands. Yeah. This is just a movie full of stuff that is pulled, the best parts of stuff from other stuff. Yeah. What's aged the best, by the way, out of all those things? Gandalfini, uh, Personally, Floyd, I think the Hopper. way it looks has aged the best. Like, I think that of all the things in it, I, I just really go back to this as like the, the peak of Tony Scott's like just... Neon vision of of urban America. 
I still am responding to the dialogue the yeah. most, you know, yeah. the, the, the way that it's written. And obviously it's like so over the top and violent and offensive, but like that was the, that's the point. That is the point. It's pulp. And I don't know. I, the Gandolfini one is like, obviously they predicted one of the biggest TV. I would say ever. Gandolfini. It's this. Yeah. It's like watching, I don't know, Michael Jordan in college or something. Right. Be like, Oh, there's Michael Jordan having 37 on North Carolina. Like, that means something. I don't know. Uh, what's age the worst? Smoking in movie theaters. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> jarring. First choice. In the payphone. <laughs> Smoking movie theaters at a payphone. I was like, oh, because for the most part, this movie could have come out right now. Yeah. There's a couple small things. That, I think Gandolfini beating the shit well, out of we're Patricia Arquette that. for 10 minutes probably yeah. W- yeah. wouldn't come out today. I don't think that they would do that. I don't know that they could do Drexel today. Probably not. Although here's the thing, it's I don't like, know that you can do the Sicilian today. I mean, I, I yeah. honestly like. I think that I that had the eggplant speech as Tarantino. I, I think they would have done it. They do it. Though. I know. I think they would have done it. I think. I think people get way been out of shape about it. Definitely. 2018, because we live in the everybody has to be perfect all the time. Outrage society, and everyone will line up for that one. Tarantino, why does he keep doing this? But he, we're going to go through it again. Attack. He's going to do crazy shit in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There will be this whole cycle of like, can you, can you not do this? I still think he's doing the movies that he wants to do. Thing is, is like, he always describes himself as a dude who grew up around mostly black people who had a lot of black friends as a kid. And so he ha- feels like he has access to this experience and he always writes about it. And he always has Sam Jackson in his movies. And every time this comes up, Sam Jackson is like, Quinn's not a racist. Quinn's cool. I love Quentin's dialogue and he really understands something. And this, we go through this every single time. So the Sicilian speech he said is based on a conversation that he had with a guy that he was friends with who was black, who told that story. He puts it in the words of an old white guy. So it's more offensive. The Sicilian but- speech also is rooted in a very, like that's a very true to life kind of character of a guy who's like very lonely and reads a lot of history books and is like, I know a lot about the world because I read. hundred percent. It's a fucking guy that I've definitely met over the course of it's my life. Who's just like, guess what? You ever read this book? You didn't read this book. I'm going to tell you something about this. Yes. And you're like, oh, great. Here I am. I'm going for a ride with this guy. And, and that's the thing I think is the very important distinction about this is that there's like probably... For better and for worse, we're losing our ability to distinguish between the creator and the creation and whether or not the characters that we see on a screen should match our moral values, right? And whether or not seeing somebody with moral values that you find reprehensible at times, it still makes them worthwhile characters to watch. By the way, it's art and it's fake. I never had that. I've never had that problem. I'm also a white man, so I've never been like really like the target of of the things that would make me upset about it. But with Tarantino, it comes from a tradition of pulp, crime, gritty, fucked up people who are not good. No, nobody in this movie is good. And like even Clarence and Alabama, for as much as we like them, are essentially criminals. And it's just like, you just have to kind of like change your compass a little bit when you're watching this stuff. And that I guess I'm just personally like way interested in these kinds of people, but I never get confused about whether or not like Tarantino is racist or where he thinks like, this is really cool. What's happening to Patricia Arquette, but let's talk about the other stuff in the movie. We talked about this last week with Rounders too. It's like, there's a movie about dirtbags and crooks. We yeah. make a movie about dirtbags and crooks. They act a certain way. I put the eggplant speech down for this, but at the same time, I don't think it's aged badly. I just think the country's changed. And in whatever new prison we're in, people will be like, oh, what is this? But the whole point of that is those are the characters. He's not condoning the dialogue. And the guy's, Hopper's basically knows he's going to die. 
And he tries to get him walking yeah, he takes and fucks with him. And he's like, and says the worst possible thing he can think. Yes. Like, we should still be able to do that in movies. The Gandolfini Arquette scene. I'm going to defend the scene. And I think it could still happen in 2018. The whole point of this movie is everybody's bad. The behavior has to be over the top to warrant like, you know, that we're invested in these characters. And she's the hero of the movie and she wins the scene. She kills she him. Does. And it goes so over the top in a way that is you can't believe it. She's this hooker who has had this come around and I'm rooting for her. I'm invested in her. I want, I want them to sell the suitcase. And now that Gandolfini's in the hotel room and, and she's for some reason not scared, doesn't turn around and run, tries to deal with them. It goes super duper dark. He's just pounding her and she survives and gets out of it. Like to me, it's no different than Uma Thurman and Kill Bill or something. There's also like the- I, I don't feel like it's like th- a domestic scene, violence scene. No, that, no, I don't either. That scene gives this movie like a tremendous amount of gravity and it may be, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to watch. It may be- It's, it's maybe it's super it, uncomfortable it, it, it to watch. It maybe is like unwatchable to some people and I totally understand why. But so much of the beginning of this movie and up until this point is fantasy. It's a fantasy of Clarence's to have a woman like Alabama. Her name is a fantasy. Like nobody's named that. She looks like a pinup girl who walks off of a poster. Everything about what happens for them where like he kills the drug dealer and it's a bag full of Coke. And then they get in a Cadillac. How does a guy like that have a Cadillac like that? And just drives off to the desert. He gets from Detroit to California in a snap. And it's everything about it is this dream. And then this ends that dream. Because this is the consequences of all the fantasy. I mean, obviously the Drexel scene is violent. He gets his face punched in a little bit. But this is a guy who's seeing Elvis in the bathroom. And then finally this scene happens and it's away from Clarence. And this is like who these guys really are. This is what they're willing to do to people. And it it completely changes the sort of stakes of the movie. And by the way, Gandolfini sets it up really well in this scene. You know. Let me take he, a look at you. He He plays... He plays it almost, almost like uh, he's a masochist. He's like, like you, you get a shot at me, you stab me. But he's almost like there's something likable about him until he actually starts hitting her. Where it's like, oh, he's he's kind of flirting with her. There's this weird dynamic that I can't remember seeing before, and then it gets violent. But he sets it up it, after he hits her a couple of times, and then he goes, you know, the first time you kill somebody, and he's just taught he's he's a fucking psycho. And the whole point of it is that guy's a psycho. Yeah. And she has to defeat him to keep going. I'm so into it by the end of that. When she kills him, you're like, yes. She's hitting him with the rifle. Um, I don't know. I just think it's great. The only thing that will get legislated is when Tarantino does stuff like this, it's it's not beautiful. It's usually very gross and raw and real. Tony Scott makes really beautiful things. Mm-hmm. And this those scenes are weirdly shot beautifully. There's like the slow motion when she goes through the shower. There's her getting pushed against the the, the mirror. There's all this like art film stuff going on. When she on. kills him at the end, it's almost like a like a like a caveman killing like a woolly mammoth or something. She's like with the like phone, a phone. Like platoon. Like, ah! Yeah, exactly. And I think that people would be like, this that is a glamorization of stuff like this. And it's also the scenes are, it's, it's basically three scenes cut up because they keep cutting back to it. And it's just really long. It's just a lot of time spent us watching Patricia Arquette get her ass kicked and she kills him in like 30 seconds. Yeah. But there's just so much time spent showing her get, getting beat up that I think today you just wouldn't have it that way. It would probably be the other way. It'd be like, 
he knocks her around for 30 seconds and then she beats him for three minutes. And then I think yeah. totally it's like the one thing that, about that scene is that it smash like he comes back and rescues her, but I think it smashes right into Bronson Pinchot getting arrested right after. Is that the next scene? Yeah, I think that's the next scene. Which is like hilarious. But is almost like tonally a little bit of a collision with like what you've They're just seen. They're definitely going for it with the immediate next scene is him getting a blowjob in a car and, <laughs> yes. and the lady knocking his cocaine all over him. I think it's the most important scene in the movie because after that, you're like, A, anything is possible and they they will absolutely kill these two people that I've become attached to. And yeah. you don't totally feel that way until that right. scene. The actual answer for what's age the worst is this anecdote about Tony Scott came up with what he calls a, quote, persuader when trying to get Patricia Arquette to get to where she needed to be emotionally for the scene. He would occasionally slap her before they started shooting. And it became such an occurrence that she ended up approaching him and asking him for the persuader before their heavy scenes later in the movies. And then he jokingly said after, it's called English School of Directing. I'm positive that wouldn't go over well in 2018. It was kind of hard to believe. Read in 2008 was kind of crazy. Indefensible and weird. That's just a weird really story. Really fucking weird. Yep. So <laughs> that came out. There's a maximum oral history that you can read online. And that's just in there. Like one of the one of the stories. Like, oh yeah, I used to slap Patricia Arquette. That's a Get story you hear about directing in like 1957, not 1993. It's Definitely like the late 60s and 70s, like Peck and Paw, and he's just like him and Charlton Heston are beating the shit out of each other before a sh- shot mm-hmm. or something like that. Well, that was the SNL sketch that uh, Belushi played Peck and Paw, like beating the shit out of his <laughs> cast members. Uh, casting what ifs, a couple good ones. For Alabama, Tarantino wanted Joan Cusack. What a fucking genius. He wrote this in the late 80s. Joan Cusack. No, he wanted I mean, like, Joan he's Cusack. the one, man. Like, that's so smart and genius. She's amazing. Joan Cusack is amazing. That is like, his. you can't raise your eyebrow at that. This guy put John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. You know what I mean? I don't don't think she has enough sex appeal for that character, personally. I always thought that, weirdly, that that Joan Cusack never got a role to show off her sex appeal. Okay. She's she's pretty sexy in um, The Addams Family. This is the Joan Cusack, (laughs) could she have pulled off a sexy character argument that we've been waiting for for 60 episodes? Is this for Danny Trejo? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. I mean, the thing is, is that Patricia Arquette is so hot and so She's cool in this movie in this. that it's it, it's hard to see anybody else. But Ridley Scott wanted Drew Barrymore. T- and Tony I really Scott, thought yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Tony Scott. And uh, so 93 Drew Barrymore was, I think, a year before Mad Love, mm-hmm. which I remember seeing in the theater because I love Drew Barrymore and I wanted to see her play like a crazy girlfriend who was unraveling. Uh-huh. And I think she could have pulled off Alabama. And I think it was the right point of her career where she had this career baggage and she had some drug alcohol stuff and kind of gotten her shit back together. I think she would have been good in this movie. And I actually think she would have been an A-lister after this movie. Patricia Arquette, for whatever reason, this did not propel her to, I mean, I guess the reason is only made $12 billion. Yeah, but she's fucking iconic. She's amazing. My high school girlfriend started like curling her hair the way that Patricia Arquette has. Cause like she was like immediately like this complete, model like model of cool like immediately and in this movie it's a role that some of the actresses now would absolutely murder somebody for you know what's funny about it too though is like we i think we talked about manic pixie dream girls a couple episodes ago she's totally fake i mean she's totally this creation the whole not just the setup that gets her into clarence's life but everything about her and i'm listening to the um the commentary with tarantino last night of the movie and he literally says on the on the commentary and he's not He's not embarrassed about it. He he says, I just didn't have a girlfriend until I was 25. Yeah. 
And I was writing this movie and I was like, he's just inventing his dream girl, a girl who will watch Kung Fu movies with him. Eat chicken, eat drink beer. And try, yeah. yeah. And, and just hang out and, and be funny and have a lot of sex and smoke. And this is, it's just what he wanted. And she's, for whatever reason, she was just the perfect actress to embody that, that idea in his head. Jack Plack was cut from the movie. He played an usher in the Kung Fu movie theater. Hmm. Val Kilmer desperately wanted to play Clarence. You mentioned that earlier. Tarantino originally viewed this role as like David Carradine and I think being a little bit more of like an older loser. And so I think that was probably like if Kilmer had gotten it, that would have been like guy a guy approaching middle age more than a pretty cool dude like who's like happens to be working at a comic book store in Detroit. This was a really good casting. What if Tom Sizemore initially cast as James Gandolfini's character? Hmm. Wasn't comfortable with the scene that required him to beat up Patricia Arquette. Asked to play the police cop instead, recommended Gandolfini because they had been in a play together. Hmm. Gandolfini gets his big break. I didn't know that. That's an interesting one. Four degrees of Tom Sizemore. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to do your little rift right now? A riff right now about uh, when he goes for the heat check against De Niro? <laughs> The bank is worth the risk. <laughs> for me, the action is the juice. <laughs> Long pause. Yeah. For me, like, and De Niro's just like, just staring right at him. And he's just like, Sizemore's like, this is my cutaway where I act against De Niro. And he's like, for me, the action is the juice. This is like the ISO for, Michael Mann ISOs for Tom Sizemore. And he's like, all right, post up De Niro. And Sizemore's like, I got this. <laughs> cutaway. <laughs> Long, dramatic pause. Michael Mann gave... Tom Sizemore is Michael Mann's Joakim Noah and, Tom, and Michael Mann is Tibbs. Yeah, like it's no just, He just keeps giving him shots. He's like, Perfect. I'm going to put you out there and give you minutes. The only thing that doesn't make sense about that Sizemore story is that like a year later, he's in Natural Born Killers as like the most disgusting person in the history of time. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so the idea that he's not comfortable beating up Patricia Arquette's character on camera and then he plays that fucking he might- evil prison warden detective? I think he might have had some domestic violence stuff in his past, maybe. Yeah, I mean, he famously maybe, dated Heidi Fleiss. Tons of su- yeah, substance abuse issues. But. Might have hit too close to him. Uh, the Joey Pants Award, named after Joe Pantoliano. Two great ones in here. Ed Lauder. Ed Lauder is the guy. He was um, Eddie Albert's sidekick in Longest Yard. He played the quarterback in the other oh, team. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the head coach in Youngblood. He's been in basically a hundred sports movies and he's the bald guy who's kind of like not as attractive as Ed Harris and is in those movies in the 70s, 80s, 90s. He's always the lieutenant. Yeah. So he's the lieutenant in this. And then the other one is Saul Rubinek, who I'm not positive everyone knows that Saul Rubinek's name is Saul Rubinek. They just kind of know him from things like, oh, oh, that guy. Why the fuck did he know your name? You little piece of shit. You can forget about acting for the next 20 years. Your fucking career is over. I treated you like a son. You fucking stabbed me in the heart. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah, that guy's not Mandy Patinkin. He's a that guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he wins for this one. Well, okay. This is a... the iconic Saul Rubinek performance to end all Saul Rubinek Absolutely. So is this, this is going in Joey Pants, not in Dion Waiters then. Well, he's also eligible for okay, Dion Okay, so I Waiters. just want to throw out two more people. Victor Argo is one of uh, Christopher Walken's uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also Conchata Farrell, who's the casting agent, who's like, yes. thank you. when he's just like, hey, over there, like Michael, Michael Rappaport's audition. And he's yeah. just like, thanks so much, Mr. Richie. We'll give you a call. It's great. Let's take a break and then we'll get to the most important Deion Waiters award we've ever had. 
Hey, imagine learning new recipes from Gordon Ramsay or photography tips from Annie Leibovitz. Now you can with Masterclass. Masterclass offers online classes taught by the best in the world. Each class shot with cinematic production quality offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content you'll find only on Masterclass. Choose from classes taught by over 35 masters, including Malcolm Gladwell, Ron Howard, astronaut Chris Hadfield, and so many more. New classes are always being added, whether you're pursuing your passion or developing your career. You'll find a master class for you. Masterclass has even been featured by the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and ESPN. I think this is a really cool idea. Um, and I'll be interested to see how many things they added. Maybe at some point they'll have a rewatchables class. We could just talk about what makes a rewatchable movie. The rewatchables listeners can unlock access to every masterclass for a year right now at masterclass.com slash rewatchables. Unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. Once again, masterclass.com slash rewatchables for unlimited access to masterclass. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash rewatchables. All right, we're back. I don't know what to do with this. These are individually, you have probably five Dan Waiters Award winners. It's like one of those Oscars categories where all the movies could win. Um, Val Kilmer can't even crack the top five in this. I have him sixth. What do you think of his Elvis just generally? Yeah, it's fine. When did the doors, when's the doors? 1990. So that's what a moment for Kilmer just floating around Hollywood being like, what what rock star can I be? By the way, Chris Ryan, anytime you're ready for the rewatchables, The Doors, I'm here. You know my number. I'm here. Can we just do Val Kilmer's 1993 really quickly? Yeah. The Real McCoy, a little underrated. Tombstone. Yeah. True romance. Incredible. Wow, that's incredible. Tombstone. And and obviously in Tombstone, that's like one of the all-time great supporting performances ever. His Doc Holliday. Gary Oldman as Drexel, the white pimp who thinks he's black. Brad Pitt as Floyd. A character so great it spawned Pineapple Express years later. Christopher Walken playing a Sicilian and somehow pulling it off. James Gandolfini as the most evil kind of hitman assassin person. Is Hopper count as Dan Waiters? I think so. He's only got two scenes. All right. So I got six then. So Hopper and then uh, a surprise entry, Saul Rubinek. Are we not going to put Pincho in there? <laughs> I feel like he's in it too much. He kind of has a big I, part. I, I feel like Kim and Rappaport are both in this movie <clears throat> in too many scenes. God, he's amazing. You want to talk Pincho first and then we'll do the award? Well, no. I mean, I just think that like his scenes, he he got the script uh, when he was finishing Perfect Strangers and he had been in Beverly Hills Cop, right? He's the guy working at the art gallery. Was it two? Serge. No, he's in both. Serge. They brought him back for two. They bring. He was so popular in one. They brought him back for two. The the roller coaster scene is just incredible. Like the like uh, apparently all of them were either throwing up or high on quaaludes yeah. doing that scene because they needed to be sedated. Why did keep... they have to film that for two days? Uh, that who was fucking knows. Like what is this movie? Tony like, Scott's a maniac. <laughs> but I I just think he's great. I do want to ask a question. Well, the... Wait a second. Can we go backwards with Bronson Princhot? Sure. Risky business. Mm-hmm. He's one of Tom Cruise's buddies, and he's really good in that. He's cop one, cop two. Perfect Strangers was just flat out a hit. I mean, that, that was like a very popular show for a long time. And then True Romance, he's in this thing. 
Not a bad, like, 11-year run for Bronson. I think he became a punching bag after the fact, but it kind of unfairly. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I think he probably didn't have the career he deserved, which is a weird thing to say about Bronson Pinchot, but he's pretty good. I mean, he's, he's great. Good. I mean, the elevator scene, too, is really great with, with Sizemore and Penn just being like, you know, he's bluffing Elliot, he's bluffing, and Elliot's just like, I want to go home, I want to go home. Him and Andrew McCarthy, I think, were two people that, for some reason, became punching bags. yeah. Andrew McCarthy was the weekend at Bernie's movies and the, and him and Jonathan Silverman I was like fuck those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um there was like there was a kind of like light comic actor that could be a star in 1989 but not be a star in 1999 and yeah. for whatever reason those guys didn't really make it. Can I ask a walking question? Yeah. Are the two scenes he's ever done in Tarantino movies, the watch speech in Pulp Fiction in this? Yeah. That's fucking nuts. I, I, <laughs> If we ever do Pulp Fiction on this show, we're going to. I will spend we're have 30 a lot minutes audience. on the Wanaki speech. That's like one of my favorite things that ever happened in a movie. It's crazy that Walken got to do both of these speeches. <laughs> That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's so crazy. So I don't even know what to do with this. I do want to give the shout out to Saul Rubinek. I think Rubinek- Doing a Joel Silver impersonation at like the height of Joel Silver to cocaine. Don't and give just- me the finger. I'll have your fucking kills. <laughs> <laughs> He's when I hear about veterans of that fucked up war. (laughs) I keep really might be the winner. I love when he He does the most with the least. Like Oldman bars, what the fuck are you doing? Oldman, Gandolfini, Pitt, all these people are like they have a lot to work with in the parts. And then smoking and driving a Hollywood producer on the PCH. Elliot, why are you calling me on Sunday? Uh, I don't know. Who do you got, Chris Ryan? I think that this is the first one where I can't really decide. It's it's something between it's Pitt, Rubinek, or or Walken for me. It's, I love I love Oldman, but like I think Gandolfini just he's in three scenes and he's out of control. Yeah, and Oldman might have the line of the movie. Is it White Boy Day? It's still probably like the. <sighs> you must have thought it was White Boy Day. I, I'm I'm. It's honestly Saul Rubinek in a walk for me. Because he's never done anything else. That's where I wanted to go. We need your decision making here. We need your decision making. All of those other characters have great careers. You know, they all went on to do amazing shit. They won Oscars and Emmys and everything. Like for Rubinek, the highlight reel starts here. Also, the everything he says is is funny. Rubinek didn't know it was Joel Silver. He was like, I'm just doing a thing. And they're like, yes, you are. (laughs) Also, probably hurt his career. The character is not written as Joel Silver. The character is just written as a producer. And Tony Scott, who hated Joel Silver, (laughs) made him Joel Silver. (laughs) Like that's really great. And so, uh, honestly, like, Tony Scott gets a lot of credit for the, the Rubinek performance because he molded him into it. But holy shit, I just love that character. It's so funny. Yeah, I guess the, the the whole conceit behind Dion Waiters is somebody comes in and has a heat check, right? And we always do the basketball box score analogy. And you can go through and do the... This is one where Saul Rubinek's like the 11th man on the team and shouldn't have been able to score 20 points in seven minutes. We shouldn't even be. We shouldn't even be talking about him right now with all the other shit going on, which I think is the definition of the waiters. When I quit the ringer, will you be like, "I treated you like a son, <laughs> and you stabbed me in the heart"? <laughs> Why do you know his name, Elliot? Why do you know his name? <laughs> the, the best one though, you said it earlier, is that thing. The body bags too. I've got more taste in my penis. <laughs> like just the way he delivers that. He's also so like. Good. Uh, Elliot, what did this cost me? And he's like, $357,000. And he's like, Elliot, I swear someone is stealing from me. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's really good. Uh, all right. Un- unexpected. Saul Rubinek was like 20 to one odds yeah. heading into that category. Gary Oldman's in the stands <laughs> applauding for him. Like, just can't believe he lost. <laughs> he's just glad that he's like drug dealers and looking for him. They, like, I you owe me money for Drexel. People who have thought about this movie less would say Oldman 10 out of 10, yes. right? Because Oldman is doing On Twitter, a- when you announced it, everybody was like, it's going to be Floyd or Drexel. It's going to be Floyd yes. or Drexel. And we understand that. We accept that. But I just love Rubinek. Yeah, watch the movie closely. Rubinek is the is the correct winner. Half-assed internet research. Tony Scott changed the ending because he loved the characters. Originally, Clarence died in Alabama, got away with the money, and he just didn't want Clarence to die. Do you like the ending? I don't like that he gets shot in the eye. I don't like that he, Clarence gets maimed. If we're going to have him live, I want him to have both of his eyes. Just like, like get shot in the shoulder. Um, I think it's fascinating that Quentin Tarantino... Wound. I I think it's interesting that that they they did shoot both. Apparently, uh, I think there's there is a version of it where he dies. Right, so she gets away. Yeah. I I I love that. Like Tony Scott just liked him too much and just didn't want to let great. him go. It's classic Tony. Yeah. Um. So sentimental. I want to see. Maybe we should make a ringer video montage of all the characters who ended up on the beach playing with their kids at the end of a movie. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, is it the same beach in Mexico that's always just perfect? And you just go down there, you bring $300,000 in this suitcase, and you're just able to just buy a place on the beach, yeah, and I'm you're good to, to go? Picture like Red talking to Alabama. You know, what are they talking about? Yeah, and they're just Red standing from Shawshank. Yeah. And, Paul, and Paul Walker and Jordana Brewster <laughs> yeah. from Fast 7. And there's Must just be a quite bunch a community. of community. Yeah. What a beach. Yeah. Great place. It's right right near Zawatneo, like about <laughs> Cash two miles away. Beach. <laughs> Elvis's estate would not allow them to use any Elvis mu- mm-hmm. music. Do you Do- like the music in this movie? I, I would love to talk about it. I love the, you'd obviously like to open the movie with an Elvis song, but Charlie Sexton's Graceland is a great song. That's a song that opens the movie and he's, it's basically just Charlie Sexton doing Elvis. Really awesome song. It's a weird mishmash of music though. Yeah. It's, it's so 1993. Especially since Tarantino's so- movies are so tightly controlled in terms of the music to have just like randomly a late period Aerosmith song play. Yes. You're just kind of like, what the fuck? That like, feels way out of sense. I got to say, I, I actually thought the music's a missed opportunity. And you could, that should have been in what stage the worst, the more I'm thinking about it. I Cause love- you could have, you could have grabbed from like the Pixies and all of these kind of uh, you get one post alternative punk type bands. You get outshined by Soundgarden. Yeah, that's yeah. the one song that's like Floyd definitely would have been listening to yeah, that. Yes. you know, like it's in the room when that's happening. Yeah, and I also love, I love the '50s stuff. I love the Hello Baby, Big Bopper thing when he's on the phone with Dick Ritchie, and I love the weird Burl Ives song that's mm-hmm. on when Dennis Hopper's walking. That stuff feels really Tarantino to me. The stuff that is like. Techno music. Yeah. That, also like Drexel listening to techno anyway is kind of weird. Yeah. yeah. You think that's he would be listening that, to Wu-Tang. Yeah. Yeah, he probably would have. But that techno scene, I think you needed the music for the for the probably. unsettling vibe. But you're right. Yeah, Wu-Tang would have been good. Uh, let's, let's, Drexel's weird eye came from the Dracula prop box. <laughs> really? That's funny. Gary Oldman said, Tony and I had tea at the Four Seasons. And he said, look, I can't really explain the plot. But Drexel's a pimp who's white but thinks he's black. And Gary Oldman said, that was all I needed to hear. I said, I'll do it. <laughs> Amazing. Saul Rubinek said, I was auditioning. And Tony said, you got him exactly right. That's Joel. You nailed him. And I said, sorry, I'm confused. Joel? <laughs> Joel Silver, he said. I had no idea who that was. They filmed the hotel drug deal at the abandoned Ambassador Hotel where Robert Kennedy was shot, which is... It's near the end of Beverly, right as you're about to hit Silver Lake on the 101. Mm-hmm. My daughter actually practiced there for half a year at Virgil High School. 
And I had no idea that the ambassador was next to it because now it's a, it's a dog hospital. Oh, it's like a dogs and cats hospital. The, the, which I, I knew none of this. The Apparently it was abandoned. And they, and they renamed like the schools in that neighborhood RFK. Yeah. Did All they? that stuff is named after Kennedy. Yeah. The shootout scene also, there's like a funny line where uh, in the oral history that Maxim did, I think, where Sizemore was talking about how they got his death in one take at the beginning of the shootout. So he had to lie on the ground with feathers in his mouth for like oh, four yeah, for days. Three, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw that. Um, the director intended to shoot Walken's part of the scene first. Walken begged him to shoot Hopper first. And Scott noticed Walken finding his character as he watched Hopper's half of the scene play out. thought that was cool. Yeah, that's cool. Apparently, Warner Brothers was going to change the title to Reckless Hearts. Oh, terrible. And, and uh, <clears throat> Arquette Slater and Tony Scott um, basically threw their bodies in front of him, along with Tarantino. Probably would have killed himself if that happened. The drug money exchange scene, it was supposed to be at a zoo and the location fell through. That's how they ended up at Six Flags. Hmm. Gandolfini got into character as mob enforcer Virgil by staying at a dingy hotel and not showering. He looks unclean. He, yeah, he didn't change his underwear, I think was the... Was Last the, but not least, Slater and Arquette seems like uh, there were sparks on and off the set. Yeah, them. definitely seems like they were having sex. It's <laughs> pretty evident in their, in, in their way Scott they Scott said, we met with Patricia. Christian had a Woody from the first time he saw her. <laughs> Patricia fell in love with Christian. <laughs> yeah, Patricia fell in love with Christian. He with her, they had a true romance. Arquette said... Uh, Romantic magnetized relationship, a sexual attraction between us. Christian Slater, it was love at first sight. Working with Patricia was tricky because I was in a relationship. We both made attempts to be professional, but that age, it was difficult. The phone booth scene is one of the more believable sex scenes in movie history. Yeah, he's yeah. like ramming he's, his tongue yeah. in her mouth. He's oh, going man. for it. Yeah, so there you go. Apex Mountain. I took out all the people who obviously weren't Apex Mountain, like Brad Pitt. Rubenek. Eagleman. Uh, Rubinek slam dunk. <laughs> There's never been more of an Apex Mountain candidate. Rubinek is like in a theater production of On Golden Pond. And he's like, <laughs> I'm doing my best work. <laughs> Rubinek was in one of my favorite cable movies and the band played on about mm. the, uh, about uh, how they tried to hide AIDS in the eighties. And he has like some great Rubinek scenes in that too. Rubinek is also an all time law and order guy. He's been on like yeah. 40 episodes. Yeah, of I law love Rubinek. Big winner of this podcast, yeah. Ruben. <laughs> yeah. Apex Mountain, Christian Slater. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to go Heathers. Too early. I think it's pump up the volume because he invented podcasting. Yeah, good point. All right. N- none of us picked Broken Arrow or Hard Rain. Uh, Broken Arrow is great. I like Broken Arrow. Sure, that's when Travolta. That was the real comeback. That was when. <laughs> yeah, that was when the wheels came off the steering wheel, and he just started going for it. Patricia Arquette. She's had some incarnations. I think it's got to be Boyhood. I mean, she won an Oscar for Boyhood. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go Boyhood because she goes on. Wait she, a second. No, I'm not. Okay. Yeah, not personally. I personally, subjectively, I don't. Th- I think it's this. Okay. Personally, yeah. for me, it's true romance, but career-wise, it's got to be winning an Oscar. Is this category supposed to be personal? Or no, no, I just don't want to just agree with you. I, I think I like I have so much of a deeper. It's supposed to be when they were at the peak of their powers and their <clears throat> career, and they had their most options and the most people um, respected she's, what they were doing and the whole thing. What did I, she do? She's right after pretty this? unknown at this time. A lot of bad stuff. <clears throat> she's she had, pretty she unknown had a rough, rough next seven eight years. Yeah. 
Tony Scott, I unequivocally for me, yes. This is the coming off. So a you run. you think this Jeez. over Man on Fire? Yeah, because he had had these commercial hits, and then it faded, and people were like, "Ah, we sure Tony Scott's good," and then boom, and then that leads to Crimson Tide, and the combo of those. He's never his career was never in better shape than somewhere between True Romance this, and Crimson. This is Tide. a flop, though. I think Crimson Tide is his apex mountain. Guys, he made a, Top Gun. What are you talking about? <laughs> it wasn't a flap with critics. <laughs> Top Gun's one of the biggest movie hits of all time that influenced an entire generation and basically launches Tom Cruise. I'm trying to remember. No? <laughs> I, I don't even like Top Gun that much. <laughs> here, here, here's the counter. I never felt like that was a Tony Scott movie when I saw Top Gun. Disagree. No, but I, you, you were eight years old. I'm telling you what it was like in the oh, mid-80s. When it came out? <laughs> yeah. When it came out, it was in like- In retrospect, it, it was, was a part Tom of Cruise. that, all, of all his work. Yeah. Yeah. But in the okay. time, it was not like, whoa, who directed this? It was like, whoa, Tom Cruise is the biggest star in the world. Okay. Tom Cruise was the narrative out of that movie. True Romance, he was part of the narrative. And I think that that's why I would say Apex Mountain for him. But I see the Top Gun thing. Because Top Gun was one of the five biggest movies of the 80s. I mean, it's definitely not. This is my favorite Tony Scott movie. Yeah. So uh, that's not Apex Mountain, though. No, I know. After after about twenty five podcasts, I've realized that that's what Apex Mountain is. I don't understand any of the categories. <laughs> you don't honest. understand Apex Mountain. I, I like that it's a little <laughs> bit elusive. It's like the MVP award. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. What are we voting on? Everybody sees it differently. Can I throw this at you? Yeah. The most critically acclaimed movie he did out of the out of these eight. Hmm. Is that true? Somebody that was searching for critical acclaim, but was a commercial success. And now this movie, he kind of had his real chops as a director. Gosh, I wonder, because this movie's not that well-reviewed. I, I, guess, it, I guess it is. You're it right, 92%, well you said. It is, yeah. yeah. No, but the critics liked it. Even, yeah, even you're right. Ebert you're right. liked it, that fucking crank. Uh, Jesus. Bronson Pinchot? <laughs> I'm going cop one. Cop yeah, One was cop, a massive, cop massive one. hit. And he was like one of the breakout stars. What's he offer Eddie Murphy when he comes in the gallery? Oh, an espresso. Espresso. And make it with a little twist of lemon. Sizemore? Heat? Uh, I think uh, looking at De Niro and- Yeah. The action is the juice is the definition of Apex Mountain. Carrying the kid <laughs> When you get to shit. the top of Apex Mountain, someone says the action is the juice. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Penn? I no, it's dogs. Reservoir dogs. Gotta be. Yeah. I agree. Nice guy, Eddie. Walking? Hell no. No. Walken's what is like, the walking apex? He's a fucking deer, deer hunter. hunter. Yeah. yeah. Can I make an early 90s walking case? Sure. SNL hosted, I looked it up, uh, fall of 92. That's when he did Trivial Psychic and Stock Talk, which were like two of the best <laughs> sketches in the history of the show. Trivial Psychic is still like probably one of the seven best sketches in the history of the show. Uh, then he has this movie, 93, and then Pulp in 94. And somewhere along that whole line, it was like this awesome walk, walking sense. Yeah. Where it was like, everyone was in on Christopher Walken. It was like part ironic, but part he was a really good actor. And then there was like, that's when like, was it was it Jay Moore who does the walking imitation? All of it. It yeah. just felt like Walken had like a real moment there in that three-year stretch. But Deer Hunter has to be the the Russian roulette and Deer, Deer Hunter. I think that's his thing. apex mountain. Here are my three favorite super weird walk-in performances. Okay. One is True Romance. It's more of a heat check than a performance. Two is King of New York. And, oh, yeah. Which is fucking amazing. And if you haven't seen King of New York, watch it The subway ride? Yeah. yeah. 
Three is Wayne's World 2. <laughs> I can't overstate how Which, by the way, same year is True is. Romance. Yes, same year. So that's the That's that 90s apex. time you're talking yeah. about. This Flip is side tough. to that is just that in Deer Hunter, I actually do believe he's playing Russian roulette. So. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. One of the most convincing performances ever. Also, in Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead in that 90s period, and he's great in that. Yeah, that's true. Treo Buscemi or Michael K. Williams for this movie? They all would fit. Yeah. Maybe you got to pick one. I have a definitive choice for this. Michael K. Williams. Yeah. I think, I think he, he easily could have been in the Sam Jackson. Any of the Drexel scenes. Yeah. Totally would have fit in. I think he could have been. I don't know. I just think he would have worked in this movie. Could Buscemi have been Dick Ritchie? That's interesting. Or He's a or, little old. Or Elliot Blitzer. I think, I think he's a little old for yeah. Dick and Elliot. Because... In 93, though? He looks a little old. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to imagine Dick is like going out for like DiCaprio, Wahlberg, like those kinds of like, he wants to be in that generation, right? That's that's what he's supposed to be. Buscemi's like a little like Coen Brothers-y guy. Mark Ruffalo, they knew there's only one choice. Bruno and Boris, the bodyguards. They're just going for it the whole time. Yeah. They have like good. three lines. I fucking hate cops. I think, I think Rubenek might win this one. I think Rubenek We're giving like, Rubenek three awards. <laughs> I, I'm never going to get it. I'll say fucking Rubenek could almost replace Ruffalo here. The Elliot, I treated, oh, you, like I treated son, you like a son. And you stabbed me in the heart as the new they knew. <laughs> Done. What a run for Mark Ruffalo. It's over. <laughs> It's now the Saul Rubinick. Thanks for playing, Mark Ruffalo. What a great 57 episodes of the Rewatchables. Now we have the Saul Rubinick. At some point you in like You me in the heart! I'm going to be doing a rom-com Rewatchables with Amanda, and I'm just going to be like, I treated you like a son! <laughs> and you stabbed me in the heart! All right. <laughs> awesome. Bruno and Boris, congratulations. We can't give it to Rubinick if we name the award after him. Uh, Boris and Monty. Whatever their names yeah, are. Yeah, Monty. Picky Nits. I only have three. How much money does a movie theater manager have to buy a call girl for an employee's birthday? Not inexpensive. Can I be honest with you? Yeah. Not really sure on the economics of call girls in 1993. In yeah, Detroit? also Alabama's only been a call girl for four days in this movie. So that's my next one. Can I give you a quick little LA tidbit too? That movie theater is the Vista on Sunset. Oh shit, really? Oh, yeah. wow, really? Yeah. Did they do the exteriors in Detroit? All the exteriors are the Vista. They, they, Tarantino tells this great story about how they put the Sonny Chiba triple feature up on the, the marquee, marquee at the Vista and his movie nerd friends would drive by it and they would call him and they'd be like, dude, you're not going to believe this. Street There's a Sonny Chiba triple man. feature. And he's like, oh, no, nah, man, hilarious. that's my movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the movie trope of the hooker has only been a hooker for a couple of days. Yeah. One of my favorite movie devices. Yes. I'm a hooker, but only since last Thursday. Right. I've only had two tricks. Yes. Would they really get out of the uh, Beverly Ambassador at the end of that movie? Slater and Arquette. Pretty not, unlikely. Well, not according to Tarantino. There's, oh, a, yeah. there's a thousand cops down there. She's carrying them. They're both covered in blood. They're carrying a suitcase. Not, nobody even looks there sideways at them. Best quote. Don't condescend me, man. Now, I know I'm pretty, but I ain't as pretty as a couple of titties. <laughs> he must have thought it was white boy day. It ain't white boy day, is it? If there's one thing this last week has taught me, it's better to have a gun and not need it than to need a gun and not have it. I love that. Son of a bitch was right. She tastes like a peach. 
I like the gun line and I think it's a good senior yearbook line for the for the kids out there, the high school students yeah. listening. I would use that one. <laughs> Lee Donowitz is not a pimp. I know that, Richard, but one thing this last week has taught me it's better to have a gun and not need it than to need a gun and not have it. <laughs> if there's one thing this last week has taught me, it's better to have a gun and not need it than to need a gun and not have it. Clarence Worley, 1993. I think it's- Throw that in your yearbook, folks. It's not White Boy Day, is it? Yeah, that is. I mean, that when we said we were doing this, that's what Zach Mack, who's yeah, he was one like, of our producers, immediately emailed us. That, that might have been because there's three white boys talking about this movie. Um, <laughs> there's like a hundred more. I mean, it looks like she fell off the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. Like, I felt like I, I, I had that one initially, but it, I don't feel like that movie created that line. It may not have. My stepfather the, was saying that in the 80s. Just it, kudos to him. It was probably the first time I heard it, and then I felt like I heard it for the rest of my, like, all through high school. You yeah. know, like, that, that's just one of those things. There's a whole bunch of those, though. I mean, I'm not a whore. I'm a call girl. There's a difference, you know. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that he wrote in this movie that then became kind of in the culture. Um when I'm with somebody, I'm 100%. I'm going to say- 100%. That's of minor importance. What is of major fucking importance is that I believe you. Can yeah. I just, and also just uh, Vincent Cacati, I'm the Antichrist. You got me in a vendetta kind of mood. You tell the angels in heaven you never seen evil so singularly personified as you did in the face of the man who killed you. That's pretty good. I love that. Man, this boy Clarence is a wild one. I like him. You know, when they're, when yeah, they're in the I, elevator. I I, Sizemore's appreciation of Clarence is one of my favorite yeah, parts of this stuff. movie. I like this boy. I like this guy. Oh, I also love uh, Marty. You know what we got here? Motherfucking Charlie Bronson. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Majestic. That's yeah, good, that's too. Good. That's good, Tarantino. Uh, probably unanswerable questions. Is it true that there are 17 different things a guy can do when he lies to give himself away? And that a woman has 20? Never heard this before since. Have you Googled? It's so weird. I, I Googled it. Nothing really came up other than just this one part. And might have been Tarantino talking out of his ass. I don't know. I, I want to believe it's true. It's one of those things. that Why you, 17? It's such a weird number to get to. It's like a science question. I don't know. <laughs> what, yeah. Well, if anyone knows, email us at the mailbag at the ringer.com. If for some reason, there's some truth in that. Why wasn't Patricia Arquette a bigger star? Why not? Why didn't it happen for her? Why did it take so long? Why did she become relegated to TV series and character Is that she has a very distinctive vibe. It's it's just like wholly her own. It's kind of like that her voice is very like specific and unique. Her look is unique. So I can I can kind of see why she didn't necessarily translate over into being in Julia Roberts type movies. But I think it is still sort of sad that she never really got a career going as, but I mean, she was on medium for a really long time. She's it's had like, a successful career. Yeah. I mean, she is in a couple of maybe not huge movies, but I think very memorable movies right after this. She was in Ed Wood and she was in flirting with disaster. And she's one of the stars of both yeah. of those movies. And those are really good movies that people like and still watch, but she does have this weird time and she was in lost highway, the David Lynch oh, that's movie, right. but she never was in like a big blockbuster. You know, she was never in a movie that you were like, this is the best movie ever. And everyone saw it. I'm summoning the spirit of our friend Wesley Morris. I think she got market corrected by Drew Barrymore. Like Drew Barrymore is like in fever pitch and stuff, but is she really like in a ton of movies that Patricia Arquette was? Rom-coms. Yeah. Uh, Charlie's Maybe. Angels. Mad Love. I always thought Patricia Arquette was cool and a little weird. And I never thought that about Drew Barrymore. Yeah. That, Even though Drew Barrymore was iconic in her time and the David Letterman. She and could she's have had a ton all those rom-com things. Drew Barrymore was weird. What are you talking about? Yeah. I, that was her appeal in the rom-coms is that she was kind of weird, but just not weird enough that guys would want to date her. Which she was is really kind of, cute though. 
You know, there was there's Patricia Arquette is a little bit more like hard bitten somehow. Hmm. What's Alabama doing right now? She's working in that boatyard with Red. She's in Mexico. <laughs> I think so. Running a surf well, bar. Okay, Clarence so is definitely dead. That's a great question. So Clarence has been killed at some point. I think Clarence probably died from complications of not having gangrene in his eye. Yeah, good yeah. eye surgery. Gangrene in his eye. Um, I always would. Li- I'd like to. I'm sure that this is on some sort of deep, deep web Tarantino database about how she hooks up with Harvey Keitel's Reservoir Dogs character. At what point? Well, initially it was because Clarence died. So Clarence. So she just goes. Yeah. Yeah. She goes on the run as a professional bank robber. Wow. Interesting. I have two really good ones for our answer, Bo. I'm really excited about both of these. Where exactly did Dick Ritchie and Floyd live? I thought, I honestly think It seems think like somewhere Fearless. up in Beachwood, right? Yes. Because yeah. he says you got to go down Beachwood, which le- leads me to think they're in the hills. Just basically you keep climbing on Beachwood and they're somewhere in there. That's right. I think where Beachwood Cafe is is right where they it are. Looks a lot like, it looks a lot like the Los Feliz Hills, the Franklin Hills. Like, yeah. When we start the Ringer video series that I wanted to do for two years, where we just go to movie locations of movies we liked, we've got to figure out where this was. It's okay. probably on the internet. This is the most important question of the movie and maybe of my life. Oh my gosh. Did the Italians kill Floyd? I think they liked him. I think they were like, get a load of this guy. No, they didn't. They leave. They leave. They don't leave? I thought they leave. You don't know what happens. They leave the first time. The second time, they don't leave. But Gandolfini comes. He leaves. He leaves. Right, because he tells them. He asked the Italians if they want to like have a bow or whatever, and they cock their guns. Yeah. But then the, it just kind of ends. We don't know if they killed him or not. Have we mentioned Kevin Corrigan playing an Italian gangster? No. No. Kevin Corrigan, one of the most Irish guys of all time. Yeah, yeah. that was weird. I don't the last, Flo- the I, last line, the last time Floyd appears in the sh- <clears throat> in the script, the early draft of the script from '92, he just says, "Well, you go down Be- Beachwood." That's his last line. There's no like, and then they kill him or anything. Hmm. I think he lives. I think he dies probably of lung disease two years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, you they wouldn't have to kill him, right? And that just leaves a trail for them if they kill him. There's no reason to kill that guy. Okay. Who won the movie? Here are the choices: Christian Slater. Patricia Arquette, Tony Scott, Quentin Tarantino, Tony Chiba, Floyd, <laughs> or Saul Rubinek. It, it definitely put me on to Sonny Chiba. I never heard of Sonny Chiba before this movie. Do Sonny the, Chiba is the, the, ja- the Johnny Chan of this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just a big winner. He didn't really do anything. I don't know, because it wasn't a hit. It's got to be Tarantino, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of brand, it just minted him. You were just like, okay, this is going to be something that I watch these these movies for for the next twenty years. I think that that was like it was a sustainability after Reservoir Dogs. Man, I'm trying to think. I mean, it's it, the Slater thing is weird. He's almost underrated in this pod. His performance, like we haven't talked about him very much. He's kind of Christian Slater in every movie. Yeah. I think by this movie, it was like, oh, he's Christian Slater. It's funny that you were so excited about him as like your Jack Nicholson, because that was also the thing that was held against him. Yeah. You know, that he was doing the Jack Jack Nicholson impersonation. Yeah. He was uh, genuinely exciting in Heather's. Mm -hmm. It was like, wow, this guy, this guy's going to be one of the most important actors of my life. I think he's a good actor and is believable in this part, even though there's a case to be made that this movie is about him being schizophrenic. Um, 
like Chris underlined, all the the fact that it's all kind of happening in his head a lot of the time. And then right. everything is sort of wish fulfillment. It's like the woman is exactly the woman that he would dream up. The scenario is a classic crime fiction scenario of you find a bag of money and you're yes. on the run. All the gangsters are are so note perfect. It's like, you know, Vincent Cacati and, you know, like and all these guys. everybody likes him, you know? Yeah. The cops like him. Saul Rubinek likes him. You know, they all kind of connect with him, which is just highly unlikely because he's a loser working in a comic book store. Right. I think Tarantino wins it because it proves that Reservoir Dogs wasn't just this weird indie fluke that really wasn't that huge of a movie anyway at the time. It established a narrative. It led to Pulp Fiction. Um, it's belatedly great. It feels very Tarantino-ish. Probably the most personal of all the movies he's yeah, made. Yeah, like, 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 proxy yeah. and... I, I would say if you're Tarantino, the dream for this movie is that it didn't do that well and then became really beloved, which is kind of what that's in his wheelhouse. I he mean, the biggest what if story. really of yeah. this of this whole thing is what if what if Tony Scott had done Reservoir Dogs and Tarantino had done True Romance? I wonder what changes. Hmm. Tony Scott was my runner-up choice. This movie really needed him. And I, I'm not positive it works in the wrong hands. And I think especially the Gandolfini Arquette scene in the wrong hands, if the tone of the movie is off, really goes badly. Do you think it works in Tarantino's hands, though, if no. he's the director? Not in 1993. I don't think so. I don't think he would have known how to direct. He may or may not have done it as long as Tony Scott did it in terms of like how long that scene plays, but it would have been closer to like the way that the ear-cutting scene in Reservoir Dogs is shot, I think. And he also famously not on the set of this movie. Yeah, is he? Is that yeah. right? Yeah, he was not. he was not present for the shooting which is obviously common for screenwriters, but he was such a big deal at the time. You know, that being said, Pulp Fiction, full-blown masterpiece, he pretty much starts making it three months after this comes out. So yeah. It's a 90% blown masterpiece. There's 15 minutes in there that need to come out still. Are you still fucking trolling Listen, us about everyone this? everyone agrees with me about the girlfriend. No I, one agrees I, Every with you. email I you get. You get three emails from three loser burner accounts that you invented. Yeah. Now, and then you're like, yeah, hey, everybody agrees about this character. No, it's 100% full It's like masterpiece. Sports Guy 2002 is tweeting at you being Do we like, need to just do a Twitter <laughs> poll and settle it once and for all? Bill, just do the fucking pot. Let's do the Pulp Fiction pot. Don't send me any more tweets from at Sil Bimmons. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So big. Tom Shady 300 is like, <laughs> that's my sounds, nephew. Sounds good, Bill. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Bruce Willis's girlfriend submarines that movie. Okay. Bill, you know what I'm going to say if you ruin Pulp Fiction for me? You stab me in the heart! <laughs> <laughs> Just remember, you're my number one boy, Chris Ryan. <laughs> that's it for True Romance. Great stuff. What a great movie. It really, I really was enjoyed White it. Boy Day. It's on Amazon. It's on YouTube. It is unfortunately not streaming anywhere else. And not really on cable. Get on it. Stars, Showtime, it HBO. It was for years. Yeah, and now, now it's it kind of faded off. Yeah. It's a movie that could never be shown on TNT. So it really has to be the HBO Cinemax Showtime. That's a good point. How about Epics? Where are you in this whole thing, Epics? Get your shit together. Stop showing Creed so much. <laughs> we are going to be back. <laughs> we I got a re reaction out of Craig. <laughs> one more episode of The Rewatchables, and then we're done with this 20-episode run. Yeah, we might have a special one in October. We have a couple, but yeah. this is uh, this was, I think, episode 19 and 20. Yeah. And then uh, we're done. That's it. Chris Ryan, Shop Fantasy. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. All right, thanks so much to Sean and Chris. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Thanks to Lisa. Remember, you can order your Lisa mattress online 
at lisa.com slash rewatchables with promo code rewatchables. Try it risk-free for 100 nights. Ships direct to your door in a convenient box with free shipping and free returns. Get up to $160 off the Lisa mattress or $235 off the luxury Sapira mattress. And free shipping on the Lisa mattress at leesa.com slash rewatchables. And our promo code rewatchables at checkout. We are back next week with one last rewatchables for this 20 episode cycle. And then after that, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how bad you guys want more of this. Until then.